So today is the 4th of July, and I'll be up front. I'm not planning a really heavy sermon today. Uh, I'd like to keep it maybe a, a little bit lighter. But that said, we are in heavy times. I'm not saying that the sermon doesn't touch on something important, because we are in heavy times. We're sort of in a situation where it's almost as if it's like the nation is struggling for its soul. It's like, it. what is it supposed to be? You would think after 200 some odd years, we'd know what we were supposed to be. I dare say, and I think we'll sort of talk about it, is we didn't know truly what we were supposed to be from the very beginning. And the consequence of that has caught up with us. The bill always comes due. You have to pay the bill. There's a saying we used to use a lot in the actuarial department where I used to work, which is that there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Right? No such thing as a free lunch. And you can't have a nation with prosperity and safety and the rest and not have the things God says are required for safety and prosperity. Uh, and while we set up a great system, it seemed, that's lasted for quite some time, it was inherently missing some very fundamental things. We're in a place where people are trying to replace foundations and supports that have been in place for generations. Does it mean that all the things they're trying to replace are bad? Does it mean that all the things they're trying to replace are good? Just because something's been in place for a long time, be it a statue or the rest, uh, doesn't guarantee one way or the other. I saw a, a newspaper article the other day where there was a movement to abolish museums. Uh, to just what, but the reasoning was, and the thing is, the, a lot of these things sound far more reasonable than you might think. The, the reasoning goes back to John Dewey. In fact, we have an article by Dr. Winnale in the current magazine about education. And Dr. Winnale talks about, in the current magazine, talks about the impact that John Dewey had in the educational system. And one of the principles John Dewey put forward is that education shouldn't look so much at the past because you don't want to try to replicate old systems, you want to move forward to better systems. You want to try to focus students on, on, on what's better, on something higher. And it sounds great until you think about it. You have to understand the past uh, to be able to have any sense of the future. The past has to inform uh, the future. So there's all this kind of arguing and discussion going on, and there's, there's a rightful nervousness to it. You know, at first, you know, we're taking down statues that are tied to uh, the Confederacy uh, and, and such. And to a certain extent, it's like, well, it, is, it probably makes sense. And then we're taking down statues of abolitionists that sacrificed personally to, to get rid of slavery. Then they're uh, taking down uh, statues of, of, of individuals that had no relation to anything at all. I think they just decide... That's a statue of an old person, so we probably ought to take it down. Uh, I'm glad I, someone said I look younger than 50, which would be great. I am 50. I personally, I suspect I look older. And so I'm kind of worried someone's going to throw a rope around me. It's like, time to drag him down, you know? What's he doing there, you know? It seems like if it's, if it's something old, it, it must go. It must go. I saw a statue that was torn down the other day. You may have seen the news item as well. And the individual that was torn down was actually a man that not only was crucial in winning the war for the North, but personally refused slaves. His father-in-law or someone tried to give him some, and the moment they showed up, he freed them and said, this is wrong, this is a moral wrong. He's actually someone that should be elevated as a hero, but, you know, he's an old-looking guy, and so we just tore him down. 
But that said, just because something is old doesn't mean it should stay. Right? It does. There's a verse in the Bible in Proverbs that mentions that we shouldn't. Well, I'll, care, I'll qualify a little bit. It says, don't move the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. It doesn't guarantee the landmark is right. And we have to understand that in a certain context. Sometimes you and your neighbor and you, for generations dispute about a piece of property until finally, five generations down the line, uh, you find out that sure enough, the plans were drawn wrong and the landmark shouldn't have been there in the first place. It really should have been you know, over there or someplace else. And in that case, you really should move. When you're wrong, you should move. But the Bible informs us to not be so hasty. You know, one of the things that... Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about, for instance, uh, that I, you know, I don't agree with everything he says, but one thing he points out is we have a lot of people that want to tear down what's currently there, but they don't have a good idea of what should go up to replace it. They've got different ideas, untested ideas, unproven ideas, and we know the only real ideas come from the Bible. But how many people are looking at the Bible for answers these days? I mean, really, I haven't seen a debate on CNN yet where some they say, well, let's take a look at the Bible and see how that should guide us in what we're currently doing. For instance, history is an excellent example. Should we take people that have this corrupted past and, and, and hold them up like some kind of idol? This is a model that we should look at and want to be like in every way. But should we also tear it all down so it's invisible, so there's no references to it anymore and that the good qualities of the person ever referred to? Who is yet going to step into the Bible and say, what does God do about history? Well, what does God do about history? If you think of even just one notable person in the Bible that God holds up as an icon of sorts, uh, probably a significant percentage, I want to have you raise your hands, might think of King David. And what does God do with King David? Does he hold him out as an, an example in the ways in which he was exemplary? Absolutely. But does God somehow cover up the fact that he also was a murderer? That he also was an adulterer? Or has that been recorded and will be with us throughout time? He's going to come up in the resurrection like, I really wish that didn't have to be written down. I wish I hadn't have done that. But it's there in God's word, God's immovable word. When it comes to history, God doesn't focus so much on, well, we've got to honor this random thing or we've got to tear it down. He focuses on the truth. What is the truth? Point it to who's admirable, but also point to their warts. You know, I hope you don't mind whatever your warts are. Don't think if God uses the warts of King David to teach people that he isn't going to use your warts and my warts that we exemplify today in the kingdom for some purpose, for benefiting someone who may be wrestling with the faults that, that you wrestle with. So it's a challenging time and nobody is looking at the Bible. So when times are challenging, I find it helpful to go back to basics, to take a look at what's fundamental. What are the things that I know are true? And we can start from there. Whenever times are challenging, whenever they're spooky, whenever it's, it seems like the world is upside down, we have to be assured of the fundamentals. We have to know that we know them. Because in times like this, it's the fundamentals that start to get chipped away. When everything else that can blow around is blown around, the only thing left to be attacked are the fundamentals. 
And this being the 4th of July, I could hardly escape it. Uh, let's talk about something related to the 4th of July. It doesn't happen very often. It happened five years ago, I think 2015, 4th of July was on a Sabbath. It'll happen again in 2026. 4th of July will be a Sabbath. But then it doesn't happen again for like 11 years. I have no idea why. You know, it's just, well, there is a reason why when you take two prime numbers and try to cycle them around. We won't go into it. Uh, but it won't happen again for another 11 years till 2037. So we don't have too many opportunities to have a Sabbath with a room full of either Americans or mostly Americans and for that Sabbath to actually be on the 4th of July. So I'd like to take advantage of the fact that we're here on the 4th of July in some tumultuous times to talk about some fundamental things. In particular, I want to ask and answer from a biblical perspective three questions. We'll focus on three questions and they'll start pretty short. The second will be a little longer, and then the third one is one that we're going to dive in, and we're also going to make sure we're, we're biblical. Because what is our goal in all of this? When it comes to America, when it comes to what's going on in the world, when it comes to our message to others outside in the world, we want to have God's perspective. Now, I understand there may be some people here visiting from another country. Congratulations. You made it to America. You came at a really bad time, just so you know. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's good to have you here. Uh, and also, these messages are often recorded. Mine may be deleted. We'll find out. But these messages sometimes do go out on DVD and the rest. So I recognize we may have people listening right now who are not Americans. And they might think, well, hello, I'm British, and why should I care? And that's best I get when it comes to a British accent. Uh, you know, they might be, you know, who knows, uh, maybe a country in Africa or Asia or in the Middle East or Australia or New Zealand, uh, and wonder, why, why, why should I care about these three questions you're about to ask. Well, I dare say, because they're resting on fundamental principles and things we should all know, I believe there's something here that through these questions, the Bible can address answers for all of us. Uh, whether you're British, uh, you know, whether you're Chinese, you know, whether you're uh, Israeli, uh, whether you're in South Africa, whether you're in Norway, I'm not going to list them all. Uh, but no matter what country you're in, biblical principles apply across borders and across cultures. And I think they'll speak to all of us. So the title of the sermon today is God's Perspective on America. God's Perspective on America. Okay, I said the first question would be an easy one. I think it's easy, but at the same time, I admit, I've actually heard a lot of church members ask this question. And when I first started, I, I asked questions like this too. You know, once you understand that the truth is not what you thought it was your whole life, you begin asking a lot of questions. And so there's nothing wrong with that, but we just want to make sure we have biblical answers. So the first question, it's 4th of July. Is it okay to celebrate national holidays? Such as, in our case, Independence Day. Is it okay? Because there's nowhere in the Bible, Leviticus 23, there's no eighth festival that says, uh, oh, by the way, Independence Day. Da, 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 da. Uh, it's not necessarily a pagan holiday. Else it would be obvious. Right? We don't celebrate pagan religion originated holidays. We don't celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Easter. We don't celebrate Halloween. But what about national holidays that exist purely because the government above us has decided it's a holiday? Is there anything sinful or wrong about that? There are some faiths that say yes. I think, for instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses is a faith that does not allow almost, as far as I can tell, I, I looked into it a lot a long time ago, almost any holiday you can think of. Uh, they'll say, like, for instance, the 4th of July, there'll be a concern of uh, too much of a focus on the country. Maybe there's idolatry 
uh, for instance, kind of idolizing a nation? And so, is it okay for us? Well, I'm going to refer to some passages of Scripture without turning to them uh, for the sake of time. And like I said, this is kind of a short one. The Bible gives us examples that tell us that it generally is okay. Generally is okay. Uh, for instance, we have in the Bible recorded for us the creation of Purim. P-U-R-I-M. It's a Jewish festival, a Jewish season. And not like the world means Jewish when they're talking about us. I mean, literally, uh, the people of Judah and Jewish. is created in the book of Esther when God, through that circumstance, saved the Jews from what would have been certain destruction. And by the way, it's really interesting, the book of Esther doesn't actually mention God by name explicitly. Even in the creation of Purim, it doesn't actually mention God. It doesn't say, let's set apart this day and worship God and think of God. Uh, it is a day where they celebrate uh, how things turned around and how they were saved. And it's very explicit uh, in Esther chapter 9 where it's created. It literally says the Jews imposed it upon themselves. It is not a day that comes in terms of God stamping it as a, uh, as a festival, as a commandment. It literally says the people of Judah imposed it on themselves. That's the New King James description there in verse 27. It's not commanded by God. So when people have come and said, well, how should we keep Purim? I mean, you can if you want to, but God does not command it. It is a, a movement. It's a day of human origin. But that said, God does list it and does not condemn it. It was something worth noting. We actually have another example of a festival of human origin that has the highest stamp of approval I think you can, at least the way I read the scriptures. Uh, and that's, in Jesus' day, what was called the Feast of Dedication. It happens in the winter. It is the origin of what has become the modern Hanukkah. Please understand, I'm not endorsing Hanukkah from the lectern. I have not re uh, researched it. As far as I know, people get together and maybe they do terrible things and watch you know, DC superhero movies together. I have no idea what it is they do on, on, on Hanukkah. Uh, I've known some people that love it and find it a wonderful festival. There's Jewish people who do, and that's great, but I'm ignorant of it, so I'm not trying to endorse it. But it has its origination, at least in this Feast of Dedication that was kept in Jesus' day, where they, they celebrate the reclaiming of the temple and such. There's no place in the Bible that it's commanded. You will not find a command of God that says you must keep the Feast of Dedication. But in, G, sorry, in John chapter 10, you'll see it implied that Jesus observed it. It says in John chapter 10 that it was the Feast of Dedication and Jesus was at the temple. He did go. That's, it's kind of harder to get a better endorsement than that. It's like if we actually wanted to endorse one of our booklets and we could just get one statement that said, this booklet's one of the best booklets I ever read. Jesus Christ, you know, we just had that on there. We do want him to be pleased with all of our booklets, but there's no endorsement that beats an endorsement from your creator and the one who gave his life for all mankind. He was a Jew and he kept that particular day. He observed it with his fellow Jews, but there's no command for us to do so. So does a civil authority have the authority to be able to create uh, days to be observed by people? And they do. They do. 
Uh, so we have a lot of days in the United States. We have the 4th of July. We have Thanksgiving. We have Mother's Day and Father's Day. I've known, again, I've been asked by church members in the past, wasn't that pagan? There's some people worry about Mother's Day being associated with the mother goddess or something, and it is not. There were some mother goddess worshiping people who tried to hijack Mother's Day, uh, but that is not the origin of Mother's Day. If you actually research the history, it's actually something far different from that. So anyway, the government can do that. They have that authority. So that was, a, that was a quick one. No pagan holidays, but definitely, we can. it's okay to observe the 4th of July. Okay, second question. It's a little harder, this question. Is it okay to love your country and to feel a sense of patriotism toward your country? Again, whether your country is America or any other country. I'll be focusing on America because I am an American. I'm grateful for the few opportunities I've had to travel other places. They have been educational in a way that I cannot completely describe easily. Uh, it really is a, a blessing to get to be able to see people who have different national backgrounds in their own environment and to, to see other, other ways of life there where people are living them. But is it okay to love your country? Or should we be somehow completely above all of that? Uh, should when we like when we heard the music today, America the Beautiful, we said, "Well, that was nice, but I don't honestly care about the topic." Uh, you know, should we somehow have this robotic, cold distance uh, because we don't care at all about our country? Well, first, let me confess before I give you the right answer. Of course, I wouldn't confess if I didn't think it worked out well. I do love my country. I feel it necessary to bring that up with crowds when I'm doing TWPs. When you're, when you're going to give a presentation to a whole crowd and some of them are wearing, you know, make America great again shirts, you know, and they're wearing, you know, woohoo. They've got pictures of, of bald eagles flying over, you know, more bald eagles and each one's got like a Big Mac and its claws or it's very American, right? And I'm about to tell them all, America's going down because it's dirty and sinful. I feel like I need to get my credibility out first and say, I, I love my country. Right. If you look at the prophets of old, they weren't actually proclaiming the things they did because they hated Israel. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. They loved their country. Uh, they hated to see what was happening to it. Like Jesus did. What did Jesus say? He said, Jerusalem, I wish I could cover you with my wings. I wish I could protect you from what is to come. But you won't let me do that. You won't let me do that. So I do love my country. Uh, I, I, I'm very moved by America the Beautiful. I like the old classic one. I can't remember her name. Kate something. She was a hearty gal, I'll say. And she really belted out. And there's nothing like hearing, you know, that, that classic rendition, I think, of, uh, of America the Beautiful. But in particular, the Star Spangled Banner. I am a sucker for the Star Spangled Banner. I would statistically estimate I probably get teary-eyed at least 70% of the time when I hear the Star Spangled Banner, especially the last part where it's wrapping up and then ask the question, oh, say does that Star Spangled Banner, uh, say does that Star Spangled Banner, yet wave, when you don't do the cadence, it's hard to remember, does it yet wave? Over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Because we know there will be a future where it just doesn't anymore. Because of what we've done to it. And this idea that someone in the past is sort of calling out to those of us who still live here in the future. And is asking us, please assure me. Assure me from whatever century in which you live. 
answer my question, does that flag still fly over this country that I love? And it, it does. It gets me all, it gets me all choked up. Uh, I love that song. I love Lee Greenwood's, you know, God bless the USA. I will admit, when it comes to baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie, I do like hot dogs. Tube steak, I like to call it to make me feel better about eating it. Uh, apple pie is all right. If my wife makes it, it's fantastic. Uh, and then, well, you know, the other thing, not so much. Baseball, I'm not a big, not a big fan. I could probably find something better to do with my time. But that doesn't make me not an American, right? We've got different, we have different sports. There's curling and other things. So I do love my country. And we'll talk about some of the other things I do love later because I think I want to give that context. So let's answer the question. Is it okay to love your country, to be stirred emotionally and bonded in a certain way to your country, uh, to your homeland, if you will? Is it sinful, rather? Is it wrong to feel such things? Is it carnal to feel such things? It's not. Is it okay? Yes. The Bible indicates that. However, in both of those, in fact, let's say in your notes, if you wrote, is it okay to love one's country? Feel free and write a yes, you know, Y-E-S. And even feel free and put an exclamation mark. Remember Victor Borgia? Does you remember him? He used to do sound effects for us. You know, yes, exclamation mark. But then just add one little asterisk right next to that. Just one asterisk. Because there are some qualifications. And we'll come to those. But before we talk about the asterisk, let's talk about the yes. Biblically, is there any evidence that it's okay to feel things about your country? To feel warm about it and close to it? Uh, absolutely. Let's look at some examples. Turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. And we actually have this adapted as a hymn in our hymnal, By the Waters of Babylon. Psalm 137. In verse 1, by the river, this is a, singing in captivity. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Having the blessing of being there with uh, the Rosses and Mr. Ross leading us all over, all over the Holy Land and seeing Zion, seeing the city there, uh, you know, on, on the, on, really a city on a hill, uh, just, just fascinating. And it says they wept when they remembered it. We hung our hearts upon the willows in the midst upon it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth. Saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You know, we want to hear the songs of your people and your land. Entertain us with that. And they ask in verse 4, how shall we sing the eternal song in a foreign land? In a land that's not familiar to them. Where the things they were blessed with did not surround them. But then they do sing. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. They longed to be in their own land again. They missed it. They would have had feelings like you have, some of you. If you have a bunch of bad memories from your hometown, maybe it's really terrible. But I just went back to Texas recently for a wedding. And I know it sounds crazy. Forgive me if, if you don't believe me. I, we can all think irrational things. 
But I'd be there in Texas, look up at the sky and think, yeah, the clouds do look different. You know, uh, the sky does seem different. The sky is bigger here somehow. Uh, there's something about it because it was the familiar. There were things about it I loved. I, I'll be driving around and the traffic's terrible and I want to boast. You know these highways. These are the best highways, by the way, you'll find anywhere. You know, a bunch of Texas Aggies made these and the rest. You, you just kind of feel this attachment uh, to what you're going through. And they longed for that because they were surrounded by things they did not recognize. In fact, uh, one of my favorite pieces of music is from uh, the, the, the kind of operatic work Nabucco by Verde. Uh, and it's uh, the chorus of the Hebrew slaves. Some of you have heard it before. It's, it's Italian, I believe, and I had the privilege of being able to sing in a church choir at the Feast of Tabernacles. Back when the church was much bigger, guys like me could sing in the choir and not be heard, which was better for everybody. But we actually sang an English translation of that, uh, arranged at the same music, and it was so moving. And it's, it's, it's patterned after what the slaves of, of, of the Hebrews would be singing you know, about how they just wish they could be taken back. And it's just beautiful. It's moving. Actually, several in our party there when we were on the Israel trip uh, last summer were able to go. Actually, uh, uh, my son and Rebecca and, and Chris and I uh, uh, can't remember everybody. Was it just that? No, I wanted to go because I love it. I really do enjoy it. But honestly, Mr. Ross was trying to kill us the whole time. So I was not, he wasn't, uh, but it was during the digs. It was during the digs and you're getting up at five and you're working hard. And I'm just watching young Mr. Ruddleston just shame me at the amount of earth he was able to move at that place. And so most likely they were there watching it that night. Uh, around Jerusalem while I was laying cold in our hotel room on the floor soaking in as much air conditioning I could and probably drooling out the side of my mouth so uh, so I could get up the next day. But I was really disappointed because I wanted to see it. Uh, that It communicates to me the passion that, that they would have felt having been taken out of their homeland. Let's look at another example in Nehemiah. Nehemiah in chapter 2. Now, I won't read the earlier part, but Nehemiah, who is in captivity, has asked for word of Jerusalem, his homeland. And he's told the walls are broken down and they're burnt. And it just strikes at his heart. It just breaks his heart. And it's easy to write all of this off as religious sentiment. Oh, not to the temple of my God and all the rest. It's easy to write it off as that. But honestly, if you just read the words and let the Bible speak to you plainly, it doesn't talk that way. It actually mentions other things. It mentions other things. The things that we would identify with as human beings. And so in Nehemiah chapter 2, in verse 2, he came into the king because he served the king as a cupbearer. And... The king noticed he was sad. He hadn't been sad in front of the king before. And so in verse 2, he says, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? Oh, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. And he says, So he became dreadfully afraid. You know, back then, you know, disappointing a king. I said, Don't you like serving under me? Off with his head. You know, I mean, what was gonna, how things going to play out? But it says in verse 3, I'm oh, sorry, he said, So I became dreadfully afraid, verse 3, and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste 
and its gates are burned with fire. The place of my father's tombs. This wasn't necessarily a religious appeal. That was where his ancestors were buried. Have you ever been to visit a gravesite, like a family gravesite? It's easy not to be attached to those things. We're going to talk about that maybe a little bit here in a minute because we're so mobile now. You know, we don't live in places where our families have lived for generations. But it was hard for him. There was a saying, there's a great English epic uh, where, uh, where these guys volunteer for essentially uh, a suicide mission that will protect their, their lands and their homes. And, they, and this, this the fellow, when he responds to the call, and he volunteers to, to this suicide mission. And regrettably, they're pagans. So it talks about multiple gods at the end. It totally ruins the rest of it. But he, but he says, as he steps up, and it inspires two other people to join him. And he says, you know, can a man die better than facing fearful, fearsome odds? Uh, can a man die better uh, than facing fearsome odds for the ashes of his father's? And the temples of his gods. Now, of course, we don't fight for temples of other gods. But this idea that this, this is the land that we were given. This is where, this is where my, my grandfather lived and died. This is where my great-grandfather lived and died. There's a natural connection to that. Nehemiah isn't challenged for this. He's not, he's not told this was sinful. God uses it for great good. And the king is inspired to send him back. The king himself was moved by the way in which Nehemiah was moved and responded in that way. In fact, when you think about it, we're told, we won't turn there, but in the book of Leviticus, one of the great things about the Jubilee period is that debts are forgiven and debts can be tied to land. It's hard for us to think about debts that way because all our currency can be digital and printed, but property, land, animals, that was your wealth. So being in debt often meant giving away some part of your land. And yet... Every 50 years, it was restored. All was forgiven. And maybe a family that had not been in its homeland for generations would get to return to the place of their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and their ancestors. It talks about that in Leviticus 25, that God, in His design of how society works, there's this permanent connection between families and their homeland. It's, 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 it's not a wrong thing to love where you come from. It's not a wrong thing. In fact, if you turn to Acts chapter 17, as we turn to Acts chapter 17, I'll just hearken back, if you will, to the Tower of Babel, which takes place in Genesis 11, where God is irritated that the people would not disperse. He wanted to cover the whole land. It's not just that God cares only about Israel. It's easy to think that because God has a plan he's working out and he does everything in an orderly way. And he's starting with Israel, but he has a plan for the whole world. And in Genesis 11, he wanted people to go. Go, spread out, cover the whole earth. And they wouldn't. They kept hanging around for various reasons. It's not, you know, we can speculate. There's things that are probably true. But they just wouldn't do what God wanted. So he had to confuse their languages. And as a result, they sorted into their natural people groups based on the languages he gave them. And they ended up dispersing finally. He had to force them to do what he wanted them to do. But you know, when you're dispersed to other lands, then your cultures change. Right? Some 
person halfway across the world isn't going to necessarily make up a song and a dance, just like someone on this part of the world. And over generations and generations, people discover different styles of music, things change, and a variety is created. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we're told by Paul in his sermon here, his, his message rather to Athens. This was, by the way, I mentioned in Dallas, I was talking about how Peter's sermon was the first Tomorrow's World telecast. Uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Well, this was where Paul got a new station in Athens. And so this was the first Tomorrow's World program broadcasting. Just let me have it. It makes me feel very good when I think about these things. But in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, Paul tells them, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God has a plan for the whole world and all the peoples of the world. And in and of itself... There's nothing wrong with cultural differences. There's nothing wrong with different styles of music. Again, in and of itself. Can things be wrong? You bet. I I dare not turn on the radio these days. I used to be a radio guy, but boy, things have gotten so degraded now. I might accidentally hear something I can never unhear, uh, it seems. So I tend to listen to the same old music I have on my my iPhone. I haven't even graduated to Spotify. I just uh, use the music I bought and paid for like a... Like a weirdo today uh, on my phone because I trust it and I know what it says. As long as it's not sinful, there's nothing wrong with different cultures. There's nothing wrong with having an attachment to the food from where you grew up, the music from where you grew up. I personally love to imagine the Feast of Tabernacles when people will be coming from everywhere Not singing songs that are terrible or wrong or evil, but praising God in different ways that maybe people on one side of the earth had never thought of before. In terms of the the facets of God's majesty that maybe their geography, uh, the geology in their land inspired them to think of. There will be people that have lived generations in in the coast that don't see mountains that often. And they're hearing people sing about the majesty of God reflected in the mountains. While they're singing songs about the vastness of God inspired by their ocean view that all of them live with. There's, again, nothing inherently wrong with different cultures and being fond of yours. There's nothing wrong with a bond with your countrymen. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And Paul talks about how, I I think scripture records Paul's passion for all people. That Paul wanted all people to be saved. As many people as God would call through what he was doing. I don't think there's any question about that. But it did bother him particularly to see his own countrymen refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their king and as their savior and as their Lord. And in Romans chapter 9, he talks about that, starting in verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, from my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, that's pretty heavy if you understand what he's saying. Essentially, this is a Wally Smith paraphrase. If it's wrong, 
Hopefully they'll edit that out. But as I've always understood this passage, he's saying that if it would somehow benefit them where they believe my fellow Jews and I were cut off, like if cutting me off somehow would make a difference for them, I could wish that because it hurt him so much to see his own people through whom he talks about the Israelites to whom verse four pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed. Amen. It just broke his heart that of all he's the wonderful things he's seeing amongst the Gentiles and his friendships and the loves that he has, the new people that he's grown that are truly family to him. That his own people, who are flesh and blood, don't accept it. They curse him. Uh, they, they curse him for even bringing this heresy in amongst them. It's not wrong to feel that kind of affinity. But now the asterisk. Remember, it was yes with an asterisk. Yes, it's okay to feel these things. Asterisk. Footnote. There are things we have to keep in mind. That natural affection must be possessed in perspective and balance. Must be possessed in perspective and balance. I'll go through this quickly, but let me ask you. If I ask you where your hometown is, you hopefully have a quick answer and haven't forgotten. Uh, I wasn't born in Lancaster, Texas, but that's my hometown. Lancaster, Texas. That's, That's where I'm from, just south of Dallas. But what is my true home? What is my homeland? Where 80 billion years from now will I have spent most of my time? It's in the kingdom of God. It's in the reward that is reserved for me in heaven right now, but which will be brought to earth by my Savior. Where is your homeland? That's where it is. Please note and read later. I don't want to linger on it too long. But in Hebrews 11, when you read about the patriarchs, when you read about Abraham, who apparently, you know, well, he lived in Ur, to be sure, but he was called out of that. And it says in Hebrews 11 that he didn't even call his homeland to mind anymore because they were looking for a city and country whose builder is God. They were looking for a homeland. They were waiting for a homeland. And that homeland meant more to them than their physical address, if you will. Mr. Weston mentioned this in his sermon last Sabbath. I won't turn there again for that reason. I think he actually, if he didn't refer to it in his latest Living Church of God update video, which hopefully many of you saw yesterday, uh, please go watch it because he talks about some of the things I'm mentioning today, actually. Paul told the Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven. Not that we're going to go to it, it'll be brought to us. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We meet him in the air, we marry him, and it's done. We come down with him. We'll talk about that moment just a little bit later, if that's still in my notes. Uh, And we take care of business next. Oh, sorry, it's in an article I wrote. We take care of business next to our husband as citizens of that nation. That is where our citizenship is, ultimately. In a sense, you have dual citizenship. 
But that citizenship is primarily with the kingdom of God. And that has to come first. If we think of ourselves as, say, an American, before we think of ourselves as a Christian, we are wrong. It's not even a debatable fact. If I, someone who lived in the greatest state in the United States of America, uh, the great state of Texas, if I think of myself as a Texan, yeehaw, before I think of myself as someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of God and an ambassador from that place, then I am wrong. There's nothing about me that supersedes that. Not my family background, not my race, not my nationality, not my hometown, not my football team. Nothing supersedes that. Those things are more important than all the rest. That said, who are your real people? You know, Paul talked about his people, the Jews, his, the, his, his familial tie, his, his, his countrymen in the flesh. But fundamentally, even above and beyond that, he knew what his family was, like Jesus Christ did. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and in verse 46, we read of Jesus teaching others. Matthew 12, verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. This is his blood relations. And then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. That would be us if we were there. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You can read in Galatians chapter 3, where we're told there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. That we are one in Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, we are the Israel of God. Each of us, if we've been baptized, is a part of the family of God. I love my father. I love my mother. But Jesus Christ is plain in terms of the order of importance of that. What matters more? Is it my mother and my mother's mother and that, that lineage, that physical lineage that I have? Or is the fact that I'm a child of God? Jesus Christ said, whoever comes to me and does not hate father, mother, husband and wife, you know, a parent and child and the rest, cannot even be my disciple. It supersedes all of that. It's not that those things don't make a difference. You know, someone want to say, well, you know, Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female. So I'm a dude. I want to marry a dude. And, you know, as long as we're Christians, it should be okay. No, it's not okay. Uh, it doesn't change. It doesn't change actual biological facts. You know, there's a difference between men and women. And viva la difference, right? I don't think anybody's interested in really changing that. But in terms of our standing before God, 
completely identical. In terms of our citizenship in heaven, all of it, the same for all of us. So that's the caveat. Yes, love our country. Yes, love our fellow citizens, people who've experienced so many of the same things that we have and the rest, not perfectly and differently in a lot of ways, but still live in the same place. But none of that can supersede the rest. And I've seen people, they get in this kind of atmosphere of, you know, America first, you know, America, you know, above all things, uh, to the point they treat other people like garbage, absolutely garbage. And we can't get caught up in that. We have to make sure we avoid that kind of spirit. They say blood is thicker than water. Physically, it's true. Uh, but, of course, it's metaphorically. Blood is thicker than water. But spirit is thicker than blood. Spirit is thicker than blood. And it ties us together in a way nothing else can. Okay. So can, is it okay to love your country? Absolutely. It's okay to... You know, if you were sobbing... I heard some of you just sobbing pure tears of joy at the piano. I know you weren't. That would be... It would be awful to be wearing a mask and have all that kind of stuff going on. Um, it's okay, but keep it, keep it within lawful, godly bounds. All right, the last question, the one we'll spend the rest of our time on here on the 4th of July. In some ways, it's kind of the easiest question because the Bible really is explicit about it, and we are blessed in the church of God to understand it. At the same time, I also find it one of the hardest because I feel the directions in which my own heart is pulled. And I like to think, you know, I'm not alone in some of that. And that I've talked with some of you. I do think that perhaps uh, some of us struggle with similar things. Why is America great? Why is America great? We live in a time where, I was going to say there's two factions. If you pay attention Two doesn't do it justice. America is splintering into more divisions than I... It's hard to imagine. People are creating new ways to be seen as separate from someone else. They're inventing whole new categories of being so that people can can, can make distinctions. Uh, the, the presenters on the telecast are working on a new semi-annual offer where we're talking about some of these things. And... and the, the madness that has grown into the idea of what your identity is is the topic I've, that, that I'm covering. And it is just crazy about the ways we think of to divide ourselves, right? It's, it's, it's really a maddening time. But one of those times that you can identify certain factions is there are factions that believe everything that is in any kind of way considered American should be destroyed, should be wiped from the face of the earth. It's an indelible taint and it should be burned with fire until it's gone. Burn it with fire, take the ashes, and put a nuclear bomb on top of those and try to obliterate any residue of the existence of the United States. That's ex one extreme end. On the other extreme end is the idea that America can do no wrong and that we shouldn't talk about our faults because talking about our faults takes away from the attention of the good things and we should only focus on the good things. Uh, you know, America first, you know, my country, was it right or was it saying, um, my country, right or wrong, my country. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, there is a sentiment like that out there. Uh, there's this idea of American exceptionalism that the United States is the greatest single country in the world, which because of prophecy, we can agree. We actually understand the fulfillment of prophecy, which we'll discuss briefly. But the reason it is, is because of everything American. 
our approach to government, you know, our approach, our values, uh, everything American. And the world would just be better off if they would be just like America in every way. You've got these extreme ends. Again, no one's looking at God's own example, at God's own word to see what is the truth of this. Because you'll find it, it lies in between those things and that the actual key reasons America is great, nobody touches on. It's very easy to get caught up in all of it. I freely confess that I feel those pulls in various directions. Uh, I've mentioned before, I think my social media vice of choice is Twitter. Uh, Facebook sucks me in sometimes when I'm watching over somebody else's shoulder. Instagram, I'm just not pretty enough to do those kind of of pictures some of y'all do. Uh, Nobody really wants that. Honestly, we don't want some of y'all's cut that out. Uh, Stop focusing on yourself. Uh, But regardless, uh, Twitter... Twitter. Hey, I can take my news and tiny 280 character bytes there you are, something like that. And so, so I, I do see a lot on, on Twitter. And I post here and there, but I try to be careful about it. Because there's times the heart is deceitful above all things, and my heart will say, Oh, you've got to write that. You've look at that article. You've got to post something on that. You know, you'll you'll give a godly perspective on that. You know, go ahead, go ahead and do that. It's like, no, 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 I don't. The, you know, the 10-foot pole wouldn't be long enough, you know, for me uh, to touch that uh, because it's a deceitful heart uh, that wants me to dive in and get caught up in all the muck of the day. So I'm recognizing I, I, I feel these things. I, I, hope, I hope, hope that gains some sympathy with some of you. There is a sense, let me, this is what I'm fessing up to. There is a sense amongst Americans, not everybody but many, that the American way is the best way. That if there's a way, and it's got made in the USA, you know, on the label on there, then that's the best way. That's the way it should be done, right? And often there's cowboy boots involved or something. Uh, It's easy to get in that sentiment, and I get caught up in that. One of the reasons I'm grateful for travel and for the church being so internationally oriented is I've, I've met Canadians. And guess what? Some of those Canadians are pretty sure the Canadian way is the best way. You know, they'll talk about, you know, they'll hear stories in America where they're trying to really dis uh, centralized health care you know, or free health care. Like, oh, in Canada, they're begging. You know, I knew a guy that needed a liver and they they gave him a dog's liver. You know, they'll say something terrible. And, and you talk to some Canadians like, well, I, I love it. I would hate to be down there. You know, uh, you know, I had a friend in America that couldn't afford this surgery and the rest. Uh, it, there's no perfect system that man has ever come up with. It's not the American way and the rest, but still they're Canadian and they, and they love it. Right? Syrup. Best tasting syrup in the world. Canadian. It's the only people I know of in the world yet that love their flag more than Texans love theirs. Uh, I have not seen any state in the Union that flies flies their state flag more than Texas. But Canada blows Texans away in terms of a fondness of their flag. There's a reason in the literature, if it's Canadian, we just stamp a Canadian flag on it. Because we know it's going to get probably, who knows, 10% more more readers. Uh, But you know what? It's not just Israelite countries. You talk to Germans. And they love the German way. They love the German approach. They love what they're doing. You talk to people in different countries and they often like their ways. Talk to the French. And they'd be glad to explain to you why the French way is better in so many ways. As an American, I'm tempted to say, look, Superman trumps everything. And he fought for truth and justice and not the French way, right? He fought, you know, the American way. Uh, but that's just the way we are. It's easy to fall into that, but is it true? No, it's not. Just because something's the American way doesn't mean it's the best way. But why do we think that? 
There's reasons we think that, and we need to know what those reasons are so we can resist them when we see it pulled. So let me just give you uh, four ways. Four, here's four reasons why I think that very quickly. One, it's natural to think that. That's the way human beings naturally want to do. The Bible says in the Proverbs that the way of a man is right in his own eyes. Right? He thinks he's wise. You think that the ways of your people are the best. It's natural for us to think that. Just note Proverbs 16, verse 2 as an example. There's a professor I was reading just yesterday. When he gets these young kids in college, he, he quizzes them. And he'll say, okay, I'm curious. Imagine all of you, say it's a class, it's a big college, maybe it's a freshman class, say it's 80 kids. Imagine all of you lived in the deep south in the United States before the Civil War. You were reared in the south. That was your whole cultural background. How many of you think that you would think racism and slavery is okay? And how many of you think that rather you'd be passionate abolitionists trying to end slavery? And these naive college kids, they all raise their hands. Oh, abolitionists. We would all be, I would be trying to end slavery. He says, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, one, that's sort of foolish to think that because our culture does affect how we think. But he actually gives them a test. And says, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Then write me a paper and explain to me, and I can't remember all the conditions, but explain to me a time when you took a moral stand that was completely against the beliefs of all of your friends, that all of your friends disagreed with you, that you lost status in your profession, lost income, and paid essentially the kind of price that it takes to make a stand like that. Now, what fascinated me is I thought of us and I thought of some of you because many of you have done exactly that for the truth. You've lost family. You've lost friends. You've lost jobs. Some of you have lost virtually everything except your integrity before God because you would not compromise. But I hope it makes people think we are affected. It's natural for us to lean in the direction uh, of what we've been reared with. A second reason. It's easy to think that is that we see the remnants of biblical thinking in America, like the basic family structure, and we begin to fall for the idea that somehow America was a Christian nation at any point in its existence. I appreciate the announcements, and I appreciated Mr. Strain's uh, reading of them and his, his personal commentary as well, is we are blessed to live in a country that, did, that was influenced by some biblical ideas. Uh, the importance of the family. People don't think that anymore. Uh, but at least there was a time. I was reared in a family that at least stayed intact for 18 years. I'm grateful for the 18 years I got. Why did they stay intact for 18 years? Because they had learned something from their parents who had stayed together forever. It's easy to see those things and think, yeah, you know, America was a Christian nation. But we have to be careful about that. America has never been a truly Christian nation. And was not founded as such. It was founded by men, thankfully, thankfully, were at least influenced by some of the ideas they carnally understood from the Bible. As many other nations have been. But that said, uh, for instance, George Washington was negotiating it during his term. The first president of the United States negotiated a term with some Muslim nations. Well, Muslim. Sorry, we say Muslim now, but it's Muslim then. Uh, some Muslim nations in North Africa. 
And so George Washington was negotiating a treaty relationship there, and he didn't finish it in his term. It was finished the next term by John Adams. It was ratified by the United States Senate in 1797. In the treaty negotiated by Washington and finalized by Adams, it explicitly states, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. That's the U.S. Treaty with Tripoli. Why did they say that? Because part of the founding of the United States was for religious freedom. They didn't want a nation that was founded on a particular religion, like England had a national church and the rest. They even wrestled over that in the Constitution. Uh, and various ones, I think Madison, certainly some others, argued that they would not put an endorsement of Christianity in the United States Constitution, even though there was a faction that desired it. They were afraid the country would fall apart if it didn't. And they said, we cannot do that. We refuse to do what uh, the other nations that we've, that we've been in have done. Actually, just a year before that, Thomas Jefferson himself, uh, the year before that, Virginia had passed some laws that were explicitly religiously free so that nobody could establish any religion. The, the state would not take taxes to pay one church or the other, completely disassociating. And Thomas Jefferson praised the fact that that act gave equal status to the religions of, quote, the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mahometan, the Hindu and the infidel of every denomination. That's what they designed our country to be. So the idea that somehow we were a Christian nation and we're not anymore, we have definitely given up many values that are biblical. But we can't fall. I don't care if we're CNN fans or Fox News fans. We have to be sure we don't fall for jingos. That we don't fall for... You know, if the devil... What do you think the devil wants to do with you? Does he want to make you hate America? Or does he want to make you super patriotic with an eagle on your shoulder all day long, uh, you know, the, declaring America as a Christian nation? I guarantee you he doesn't care as long as you're distracted from the truth and the gospel of the kingdom of God. Satan is kind enough to allow us to pick what we poison our minds with. Third reason, it's easy to fall for that. For me, you might have completely different reasons, but I've examined myself uh, and I'm explaining the reasons that I can be pulled in that direction. It's easy for Americans to confuse American principles and values with God's own principles and values. Because again, there is some overlap and it's wonderful. I'm grateful for that. I hope you are. And I'm actually grateful for many of these. But the idea that these are somehow God's principles and values because they're American values would be false. And there is a lot of Protestant material out there that would want to convince you that these are somehow biblical values. For instance, freedom of religion. Sometimes we'll water that down and call it freedom of conscience. Uh, but freedom of religion. Are you grateful for freedom of religion? I hope you are. I am. The fact that we got to meet here and didn't have to show papers or anything, uh, that we're some sort of disfavored religion with the government, I am very grateful because that's changing in many ways. But is that an actual biblical principle? No, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but please know Deuteronomy 18, where God says, if someone comes to you and he's preaching in the name of another God, he dies. Just dead. God is not going to put up with that. He says, even if there's a prophet and what he says happens and all the rest, he comes preaching in the name of other gods, then he is dead. 
then your job, Israelites, is to kill him. Uh, because we will have, God says, no other religion. In the millennium, will there be freedom of religion? No. 100% not. Right? We'll be spreading the kingdom over the entire world, and there will be one. One God. One Lord above all. Am I grateful for it? Yes. If there were not freedom of religion, and there were a state-sanctioned religion, do we think it would be ours? Consider, for instance, uh, in when President uh, Bill Clinton, when Bill Clinton was president, he pressed for increased protections for homosexuals in the workplace. Pressed hard. And it, a lot of companies adopted new diversity uh, policies for that. And I remember being disgusted by it all, right? It's like, why, why are we creating a, you know, based on some class of what people, people who want to have amorous relations, quote unquote, why is that a protected class in the workplace? That doesn't make any sense at all. And I'm thinking, well, I've got kids now, you know, how, how, how are my kids going to interact with because of this? And then my boss one day comes to my cubicle, my little Dilbert cubicle, and hands me our new policy and says, you know, Wally, I want you to have this. She was very supportive of, of me in terms of my faith and such, and I appreciate that. She goes, I want you to have this. Because with your holy days and such, sometimes that takes you away at times when other people don't get off. We had like an annual statement around the feast time. Uh, and she goes, and I want you to know, this policy, this new policy protects you. The company cannot fire you for these things. And you think, well, here I am, you know, ranting and raving in my mind, you know, about something that how do I know God wasn't enacting something for his broader purpose to give some more protections for his own people and using a sinful person to do so. Right? We have to be careful that God does allow things. But it doesn't mean that they're necessarily godly in and of themselves. No. We'll just hit a few. Actually, again, if you've seen Mr. Weston's video, he talked about democracy. Is democracy a godly principle? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Government from the bottom up is, is detestable. In terms of, actually, I read, for instance, now someone said, we're not a democracy, uh, we're a democratic republic. You are so picky, right? Uh, sure, okay, we're a democratic republic, right? We elect representatives, et cetera, in the way, the way that works. But still, even republicanism, not the political party, but the, the politics approach that America employs. What's the basic principle of republicanism? I looked it up. It's that the sovereignty of the people are the source of all authority in the law. And government is based purely on the consent and will of the people. Where in Scripture does God actually endorse that? It's the opposite. In fact, the one time we actually see the people of Israel getting tired of top-down government because Samuel's kids were, were terrible, uh, they go to Samuel and say, here's what we want for a government. And they go and ask for a king. And God tells Samuel... You don't feel bad. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Democracy is directly related to the division we see in the country today. When everyone has a chance to make the government their own image, no one wants to compromise. And we're told, Jesus Christ said, if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, since we're still there, in verse 25... Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 12 and verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. The idea where the people are all divided, constantly trying to turn the government into what they want it to be is doomed from the start. 
The moment we decided that's what our country was supposed to be, the death was announced and we're just waiting for God to write the death certificate. Democracy is not a God. Now, has it benefited the country for a time? Perhaps. Has it made a stable government? Well, you might think so. Yeah, we've lasted, well, you know, almost 250 or so years, right? Yeah, tell that to England, right? Tell that to kingdoms. We are still infants and when it comes to world government for the most part in terms of the history of the world. Well, infants might be a bit much. Let's just say prepubescent. Uh, we are still a young country to be proclaiming to the world our form of government is the best. Ignore the police car on fire behind me. You know, ignore, ignore this going on. It's not a godly principle and it can't be defended purely from the Bible. Okay, it moves us to the Constitution actually. Now I know some of you, man, you've got to be feeling it. I can already see the Fox News blood rising in your face. I like it too. I watch it. You know, Tucker Carlson, well, let's go, right? I, I get it. I sympathize. You're thinking, don't you go after the Constitution, Mr. Smith. Okay, let me fess up. I love the Constitution. I think it is one of the most magnificent documents created by human minds. It is fascinating. It is rational. When you read about its creation, uh, it's, it's, again, it's not purely biblical. The, the founding fathers were really into the Enlightenment as well. And there's a lot of logic and rational philosophy that was poured into the Constitution. But the Constitution is part of the reason we're doomed. We just read, actually, right? Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself. What did the founding fathers seek to do? They didn't want to be abused by a king that had all authority. So they created three branches of government that worked in opposition to each other. If the executive power wants to do something that it's not constitutionally allowed because it's the Congress, then he has to convince the Congress and they fight over it. If the Congress wants to do something but they need the president to enforce it, then they fight over it. And so what do we see now? We see a bickering bunch of adolescents in our government. People that don't seem to believe it's possible for a country to fail. And that division is literally built in by design. It breaks my heart to say it. If there were a Constitution song, there's like an, I'd, I'd sing it. You know, I really love I love the Constitution. But that said, does that is it a godly... It's, let me say this. There are godly principles present. But is the Constitution like the Bible? Were they all sitting around in the late 1700s thinking, man, this whole confederation of states isn't going very well. What do we do? And then, oh, it just kind of floated down from heaven and landed in front of James Madison. Oh, you know, we have God's solution. There's a brilliant document, but like all the creations of man that refuse to do what God says, it will be plucked up by its roots at the return of Jesus Christ. Finally, as much as it pains me, capitalism. Man, again, I love capitalism. You just love Venezuela. You want to be like Venezuela, Mr. Smith? Is that what you want to do? No, I don't. And it frustrates when I see people trying to push us in the direction of Venezuela. What are they thinking? And the whole idea that, oh, you know, socialism. I know all these other countries have failed. It's because no one's done it right yet. And we're going to figure it out. I think that's crazy. But that said, is capitalism the godly alternative? No, we don't have to actually. Most of us hopefully know this. In the millennium. Are we going to practice pure Adam Smith laissez-faire capitalism where if you control the means of production, you get to do whatever you want with it? And that somehow the invisible hand that Adam Smith talked about will shape us into a fair and just society? 
No. And we practice, for instance, third tithe. Where God says, yeah, hey, good job, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, two years out of every seven, uh, you know, every third year, you're going to turn that in and I'm going to take care of the poor with that. Ah, socialism, God, you know, and the rest. God says, okay, whatever, you're going to give it to me anyway, right? Because it's what he designed. He doesn't tell the farmer, you know what, just do whatever you want. He says, no, you're going to leave the corners of your field for the poor and you're going to leave the gleanings and let the poor pick that. Well, you know, God, I was reading Adam Smith, you know, in The Wealth of Nations, and I think if you allow me to use the corners as well and the gleanings, I'll make even more profit. It'll be marginal, but it'll build up on itself interest-wise and the rest. And once I have enough money, I'll, I'll build hospitals. I'll devote more to the poor. And God says, shut up and just do what I said. There is no ism of man's creation, whether American or otherwise, that beats God's approach. Now, again, am I grateful for these principles? Absolutely. Absolutely. But are they godly principles, therefore? No. I just like them because they're buying us more time to do the work than the other principles are. And they allow me to buy an iPhone. Okay, the last reason. I don't want to dwell on it, but this is the main thing I want to get across here at the end as we begin to wrap up. Part of the reason I can be tempted to think that America's ways are the best, the best in the world, is because of how successful we've been in the world. That somehow America's ways are God's ways because look at all we've achieved. What other nation has achieved what we have achieved? Doesn't that mean we have God's stamp of approval on the way we do things? The fact that he's allowed us to free whole nations, isn't that a stamp of approval on our approach to government? Isn't his stamp of approval on all things American? That somehow I'm tempted to think America's ways are God's ways because of our success. You know, there's a famous quote, and the recording doesn't pick up. I'm doing air quotes when I say quote. There's a famous quote, air quote, that was supposedly given by Alexis de Tocqueville, the famous Frenchman that examined the United States in the 1800s. You may have heard it before. Freely confess, I've used it before. Because it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'd like to believe it. It says, America is great because America is good. If America ever stops being good, it will stop being great. Doesn't that seem to match everything we want to say? Wouldn't it be great if he actually said that? But he never said it. It's part of what we do in editorials. We have the... Super pleasant job, you know, just Pat William Williams on the back and Thomas White, you know, they get to go look this stuff up to see if people actually said the things we all think they said. And I have used this in sermons and Alex de Tocqueville never said it, never said it. I'm pulled to it because it says if we ever stop being good, we'll stop being great. But honestly, I'm also pulled to the part that says America is great because America is good. As if somehow our goodness and our obedience to God was the source of that greatness. Is that the case? Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 22 to see the source of our greatness. Genesis chapter 22. Now, as I say this, I want to acknowledge Some obedience brings more blessings than no obedience. If the family is designed to work a certain way with 
a husband who is the loving and compassionate head of the household with a wife who supports her husband, giving him counsel but yielding to his lead, with children that look to their parents as the authority in their lives and respect them. When a family does that, it will do better than the other families. It doesn't make a difference if the parents are Muslim or atheist or Frisbetarians. That's the religion that believes when you die, your, your soul goes up to the roof of your house and stays there all summer. It's Frisbee. It's like a Frisbee. Never mind. It wasn't worth it. When we do things God's way, many of these things, they work because life is designed that way. Life is designed that way. But is that really the key to America's greatness, that we've just somehow been so perfectly good that he's made us the greatest single nation in the world? Is that where the blessings of nations, in that sense, in terms of our nation, comes from? No, we read about it in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 16. Thousands of years ago, when Abraham was willing to put up the ultimate sacrifice of his son, To that point, one of the greatest human pictures of obedience in history. God rewarded that obedience. And said in verse 16 of Genesis 22, said, By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, really a picture of what God himself was going to be doing. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of your enemies. In your seed, which Paul talks about that being singular in terms of Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, is it because Israel has obeyed or Abraham has obeyed? It's really fascinating how God does that in verse 16. He says, by myself I have sworn. It's this unique, unconditional agreement that God was going to bless the children of Abraham. We are blessed, not because of our particular faithfulness, even though that does there is cause and effect in the world, but Abraham's obedience brought the nation its benefits. We teach that in the church as part of how we're able to identify God's people. You can read it in Mr. Aguin's booklet on the United States and Great Britain in prophecy. You say, well, no, but is it, are you sure it's not because we're so obedient that we're because we're a Christian nation? Well, uh, James 2 verses 10 through 11 say that if you break one commandment, it's like you've spiritually broken them all. When has America nationally endorsed the Seventh-day Sabbath? When has America nationally banned unclean foods? When has America nationally taught the world to keep the holy days? When has America nationally torn down its idols and its churches? If you look at Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, that's the level of obedience God is looking at. But Abraham was faithful. And we have the benefit. In fact, if it's been a long time since you looked at it, let's look at it right now. Genesis chapter 48. I like to go over these passages when it comes to certain national holidays, and July 4th is one of those. Because to me, July 4th is part of the fulfillment of Genesis 48. Genesis 48. We have that Joseph was bringing his children to Isaac. Isaac, who had been the the heir of Abraham. And he brings his children to... Isaac, 
Ephraim and Manasseh. In Genesis 48 and verse 13, it says, Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand. Manasseh was the older, and so he was bringing him to Israel, uh, or, uh, sorry, I kept saying Isaac, this is Jacob, bringing them to Jacob's right hand, because the older was going to get the greater blessing, and the younger the lesser blessing. Aren't you sick of that, youngers? You know. But anyway, you know that's kind of how that was working out. But if you look at all these generations, God kept flipping it every generation. It's funny how he said do things that way, and, but God, God, God does his own things. And he inspired Jacob, Israel, who could not see, to switch his hands and to give the blessing to the other son. So the younger one, Ephraim, got really the firstborn blessing, got the greater blessing. And Manasseh got the lesser. And he tries to correct it, uh, Jacob. I'm sorry, uh, Joseph does. He says in verse 18, Joseph said to his father, Well, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. His father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, that is Manasseh, also shall become a people. But he also sh- and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And that is the British descended people. As part of what this prophecy has to remind us as Americans, as much as we don't like it, we're number two. We're number two. You know, we are the greatest single nation in the world. But the richness of that empire is not in a way we, there's nothing like that in history. And that's Ephraim. And we are Manasseh. If, if you'd like to see some telecasts that talk about these things, I highly encourage you to go over Mr. Weston's telecast. He did a series of three in a row. The Stone of Destiny, Why Britain Became Great, and Sunset for Britain and America. We also have a DVD that has all three of those, The Rise and Fall of Britain and America, and take a look at those. And, of course, please read our booklet, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. But this is the reason. It's great that we've done some wise things here and there. We've also done some ungodly things that have benefited us. It's, it's still the devil's world. There's ways we've shortchanged people here and there on the world scene, and we've benefited from some of those things. Uh, the country is not morally perfect. But we can't miss the things we've gotten that no level of just kind of obedience somehow makes happen. Uh, the prime minister of Japan some time ago in the 70s, uh, Kakue Tanaka, once said, This is Japan, talking about America. He said, when I compare the situation here in Japan with the situation in your country, America, I think that as a nation, you are too privileged. God has not been very fair in the distribution of resources. He says, Americans have the most stable economy. They have an abundance of resources within their own country. And they have more investments abroad than any other country. Somehow it wasn't that we were just good people that this land was, uh, you know, a beautiful land. It's because God was fulfilling his promises to Abraham. Uh, What does he think about all the people of the world? We see it described here, Isaiah 19, verse 24. In that day, he says, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. He is not ashamed to call Egypt his people. He longs to do so. He's not ashamed to call Assyria the very work of his own hands, personally crafted by him. He longs to do so. He's simply doing everything in their order. 
So here this 4th of July, or as perhaps our British friends call it, the day they got rid of the rabble-rousers, uh, good riddance to bad rubbish day, perhaps there. Here on the 4th of July, it is okay to enjoy the fact that you are an American uh, and to celebrate that fact. Let's thank God for the obedience of Abraham. Let's thank God for his mercy on our country and allowing it to not fail just yet. For those of you who are Americans, let's thank God for the freedoms we have, not just in our families, but the ability to do the work and fulfill the commission that Christ has given us. And let's look forward to putting out a gospel to the world that doesn't look backward at some kind of better time when America already was everything it should be, but looks forward to the kingdom of God.